so we are back with episode two of aviary wisdom it's a continuation of the brodigan focus getting uh, into a little bit later in his life and then when he starts actually publishing his short story collections novels etc and his launched into the world of fame and literary recognition uh so man, there's actually been a bunch of stuff going on. I was very excited. I saw a teaser trailer drop today. And granted, it was only like 35 seconds long and didn't really show a whole lot. But uh, very, very excited as I am a huge, huge Ghostbusters fan. So uh, after all the rumors floating around, Ghostbusters 3 is coming out next summer. And it couldn't come soon enough. Jason Reitman is directing. And if you're not familiar with the name, his father is responsible for Ghostbusters 1 and 2. Uh, Jason Reitman actually has a bunch of really great movies under his belt. One that most people have probably seen, or the most amount of people, uh, be Juno. He also has directed uh, Thank You for Smoking. That's probably another one that a lot of people have seen. So he's definitely a quality director. Things that maybe are a little different than the style of Ghostbusters, but you know, having his father there to sort of guide him along, maybe act as a mentor of, of sorts, and then just the quality of a director. I think we have nothing to really worry about. So that's pretty cool to look forward to. And then obviously we have the movies coming out soon that I'm very, very excited about being a super comic book nerd. We have Captain Marvel coming out. And then soon after that, we have Avengers Endgame, which it's sad that that storyline's coming to an end, but the trailer that was released not too long ago really got me amped for it. But comic book talk is for another day which actually is very true because a good buddy of mine Dylan is going to be chatting with me in the somewhat near future we're going to talk a little bit about well I'm going to talk with him concerning a band that he's a part of he's a musician playing with kick the ladder so we're going to chat a little bit about his music about the band what he's been doing, how he approaches music, all basically a general conversation about that, but also going to be nerding out because we are both huge comic book fans, so do a, a little of both, get him some free promo, talk about music, and then of course it'll degrade into other wonderful things that we both share a love for. And then after the work is over, we're going to go to the arcade because Token's Tap Room for anyone who lives in the area, is right across the street, essentially, from our, well, my apartment. And uh, I'm surprised that I haven't been over there more often, seeing as it's a, just a couple minutes walk. It's, it's a good thing, but I'm surprised, since uh, I probably am spending most of my money. <laughs> it's a great selection of pinball, uh, skee-ball, tons of arcade games, ranging from, you know, classics from the... 70s, 80s, then all the way up through 90s, 
and it's just a wonderful environment. Anyone who uh, enjoys you know, a little bit of the elevated tasted craft type special brews, they, they really, the guys who run the place really know their stuff. So if you are looking to learn a little more, refine your palate on some nicer brews, they are the guys to learn from and the added benefit of having a lot of great games to play. Right, so we are starting with 1955, which I feel like is sort of the year that things are, I guess, moving forward and starting to develop for Brodigan. Uh, part of it, I believe, because he is leaving his family home, moving into a, a boarding house or a rooming house of his own, and then there's actually a incident that occurs in his life. He ends up at the Oregon State Hospital, so I'll cover that as well. But I think 55 is really when things start to move, start to develop some. Um, it's still a few years till he puts out his you know, major publications, but we see the, the start of that process here, especially. He had some poetry published before this, but this just seems like, at least in my opinion. So, uh, yeah, he left his home, well, he left his family home uh, on Hayes Street in Eugene. He stayed in Eugene, but moved into a boarding house, which is run by a Mr. Hal Barton on West 17th, and that allowed him to live in a little bit more of a peaceful setting where he can develop his writing a little more. Um, and he had his own accounts uh, of his mother being an alcoholic, being abusive, earlier abandonment issues, and all of these things compounded and really made it so that they couldn't have a healthy connection. And leaving that environment would allow for him to better develop his writing and then just have a better sense of mental health. Essentially, he just needed to remove himself from that. Uh, actually, related to that, or on that same level, he wrote some poems directly about his mother. Uh, one was titled, Dear Old Mommy, comparing her to, <laughs> actually comparing her to a mole that was put in a, one of his collections. Uh, you start seeing poems that are showing up in his collections of writing. Uh, previous ones were, as I was saying, not showing up in any publications. They were they were being put out there, but they weren't showing up in his later collections. Um, there was another one that was titled Farewell to My Oedipus Complex, which is an interesting title for it because I understand the idea behind it, but it was never really talked about, you know, having any sort of healthy relationship with his mom, even you know, in the least, let alone something like that. But it was him talking about giving his mother a time bomb <laughs> of all things for Christmas. And that was in the same uh, collection of writings, the Edna Webster collection. Um, so related to him moving, there was this shared feeling between 
Mary Lou and William Folston. Once again, her third husband. She certainly liked to keep her options going. Uh, they didn't understand his lifestyle. They didn't really get why he wouldn't be finding meaningful or gainful employment. And they didn't understand his dream of becoming a writer. They basically had these thoughts of, okay, here's the two options. Um, you should seek psychiatric help for your mental state, or if you're not going to do that, maybe you should leave our home. And it seemed that it was already in his mind that he wanted to find outside residence and decided, yep, this is this is what I need to do. This is this is it. I don't agree with your thoughts about my lifestyle, about my work habits, and certainly disagreeing with you know what I want to do with my life. This is my dream. This is what I feel I'm meant for. So that was when he moved and was housed with Harold Barton. Uh, and not only was he housing with him, but uh, he became a member of American Friends Service Community. It was actually an organization that was committed to social justice and humanitarian service. And with that, Harold and Lois were pretty much the exact opposite of Mary Lou and William. They were looking to not only establish this stable living environment, which the boarding house definitely was, but they also supported Brodigan developing his writing, and they were very much interested in him following that dream that he had of you know, establishing himself as a literary, not, not an icon, but just you know, putting out his, his works. Um, Brodigan made friends with a Peter Webster, and often would sit with him, had Brodigan read some of his writing. Um, he would dictate. Richard would be reading his works to Peter. And uh, he said, even in the earlier days, he was a good poet. And I loved the sound of his voice. Uh, at the time, Peter Webster was a college sophomore and would often visit Richard in his rented room because of this really pleasant bond that they were enjoying, or pleasant bond that they were sharing. Uh, a lot of the time, Peter basically decided to do his work on his papers, typing up his papers in Richard's room because of uh, this, I guess, relaxing setting, essentially. Uh, he would... You know, be working on his schoolwork and having Richard read his poems and stories at the same time. And even at that point, he had the feeling that, you know what, this guy is going to be a famous writer someday. He was a very, he was an early staunch supporter of Richard's work. And uh, interestingly enough, during that early period, that summer of 55, Richard was uh, developing a love for uh, Peter's sister, Linda. Linda, however, was much younger 
than Richard. She was only 14 and had just started high school. Brodigan was 20. He had some success. He was still struggling, but was was starting to develop himself. He wrote some poems for her and saw, you know, you could tell that in his writings, even if it wasn't for her, she was definitely there as a character and she definitely made an impact on the writing that he was doing at the time. And he showed her his writing. He sent in stories with, uh, you know, in her, it was essentially dedicated to her, but unfortunately none of those were selected to be published. Really, other than that, even though he had these strong emotions for her, the, the relationship that they shared really wasn't was an in, innocent one, despite how he felt about her. They shared what they had written, but he, based on his belief system and how he was raised, he knew that, you know, this can't happen. She is, she's far too young. Um, he knew that he had to hold off until she was older, and he, he still felt the way he did when she was older, then they could be, you know, they could be together. They could have a relationship where he shared these emotions with her. But unfortunately, he learned very soon enough that she, she would have nothing of, of it. She was not interested in him, and you know, he had this unrequited love he had to deal with a broken heart and still these very confusing emotions for the at least the the rest of that year and it just it was a starting of a difficult time for him although despite that he was still able to work uh, on a good collection of poems for the rest of the year some of uh, all of them being published into or most of them being published into Northwest Roto magazine. Though they were published in the magazine, continue this, it continues the trend where they were not included in later collections of his works, like many of uh, poems have been. Uh, some of them were Butterfly's Breath, Some Place in the World a Man is Screaming in Pain, although that was in The Flame rather than Northwest Roto. Uh, there was another that was dedicated to Linda, which was an in, uh, interesting one. Was the Second Kingdom, that was public in Epos or Epos, I mean either one, E P O S Epos, I believe. It was edited in or edited by Evelyn Thorne. She was from Lake Como, Florida. It was to be published, actually, be, to be published the following year, though it was finished and. Uh, submitted to her. He, interestingly enough, he actually submitted something to Playboy, a short story, and it was just titled, My Name is Richard Brodigan. It was initially rejected, but there was uh, not a... I guess the best way to put it, there was a, an encouraging letter from the editor saying, you know, work on this, revise it. This this could have something come from it. So it wasn't a complete loss, even though initially it wasn't 
uh, it wasn't accepted initially. So it, this trend of just it being a very difficult time continued into winter. He was still dealing with these emotions, still dealing with this pain of, you know, we, can't, we don't have this love that he was hoping for. He hasn't had enough success in publication. He's not getting enough money. Uh, his parents actually were paying much of his rent. They stopped that. He had to sell his, his writing equipment, his typewriter, to make up for what he needed to pay for. He wasn't having nearly enough to eat, so he was getting malnourished. He kept writing letters and poems to, or to Linda, but never sending them because he really had no idea why she wouldn't be interested in him. He wasn't sure what he was lacking. He he just, he just wasn't wasn't sure. The letters were brought to Linda's mother, Edna. I guess maybe he was just too shy or too worried to give them directly. She, unfortunately, just held on to them. She had them and maybe told Richard that, sure, yeah, I'll take care of it for you, and just kept them. And I don't know if she read them herself and decided, I can't give these to my daughter, or she just decided, no, I'm not going to bother with it. Regardless, Linda never got the poems or letters. Um, he continued to write material and continued to give Edna Webster you know, manuscripts, poetry, story collections, sh short novels. He kept kept continuing with this, all of this material, giving it into her. Uh, a lot of it being dedicated to either one of them. It went all through 50s, mid-50s, late-50s. She kept most of his writing for, for years until the early 90s and ended up actually selling them. I didn't catch um, if there was a particular reason or she just didn't want to hold on to him anymore or if she was you know, hard up for money and decided, you know what? There's bound to be someone who really wants these, and you know, when it, uh, a couple of the titles that there were, there was "I Watched the World Glide Effortlessly By" and other pieces. Would you like to saddle up a couple goldfish and swim to Alaska? They were uh, combined together in that same collection that was mentioned earlier, the Edna Webster collection of undiscovered writings. Um, he actually dedicated it to her in a, or maybe put it in her property. Actually, that's in his note uh, at the beginning of the collection. And it reads, on this third day of November, 1955, I, Richard Brodigan, give all of my writings to Edna Webster. They are now her property and she may do what she wishes with them. If she has them published, all of the money derived from publication is hers. So he really, it sounds, or at least I feel, that he wrote them with the intention of gifting them to her and maybe to her daughter as well. It wasn't something that 
he it's almost like there wasn't a huge sentimental value there was enough to dedicate it to them but if they wanted to use it to just gain from he had no problem with that it was theirs to do with what they will because it was just a gift and and maybe it was just for safekeeping because he had a deep level of trust not so much I you know I love you <laughs> but I uh, I I feel that or I felt that and then well really is it was a different book that was given I I'm mixing a little bit of these notes together <laughs> and later that month as you were saying he ended up having to sell his typewriter so a lot of what comes after this is a lot of handwritten work, which I wish I could have seen pictures of just to, to have a better... I've seen signatures of his, not a lot of handwritten, um, you know, lengthy pieces, so it would have been great to get a couple of pictures of that. I mean, I may find it at some point, but as of now, I haven't seen. Uh, he started a book of poetry that was titled, as you could guess, I Love You, and guess who it was dedicated to? Once again, Linda. Um, he finished actually fairly quickly because he started on the 22nd and finished on the 27th. Um, he dedicated it to Linda, but had this idea in his mind that, you know what, I don't think I can give this to her until he knew that she loved him. Uh, there was a note inside, just as there was one to Edna in her book. This one's a little more emotional. It was reading, This is Linda Webster's book. It is a symbol of my love for her. I will not give this book to Linda until I know that she loves me. If the world is going to get this book, Linda will have to give it to the world. Will I give this book to Linda? Will the world get this book? Only God knows. Richard Brodigan, November 27th, 1955, Eugene, Oregon. So it's, it's got a little more of a sentimental value than the collection that he gave to Edna. And I think it's less for safekeeping and more I'm just going to keep trying until you love me. <laughs> or I'm just going to keep trying. And once I give you this book, I know that you love me. And uh, once again, he gave it to Edna, but it was to hold and to pass on when it was ready. But once again, just like the letters, never got passed to Linda and Linda never knew never ended up knowing how much Richard really really cared for her and loved her and as you'd expect she never told him her love for him and again it's it's just this hardship is building and building and building and you know, the emotional stress is continuing to build.
on his well, both levels, mental health and physical health, as you know, he's still not eating very well, and he turns to religion. He was raised Catholic, and I, I've never, again, I'm not sure how devout he was. It's definitely he was definitely dedicated to the religion, and that contributed to him not being so much of a creep towards Linda. He, you know, that influenced his values, saying, you know what, this isn't right. I can't pursue this. But I'm thinking that he wasn't overly devout because now he's developing a much stronger fervor and he starts praying strongly for Linda's attention for recognition in his writing Um, you know it's winter time now by mid-December he's a good way through a new book of poetry it's uh, and then he's part way through uh, a book of short stories. The poetry is Behold This Place. The short story is These Few Precious Days. But it ends up changing to What a Strange Place. And just keeps taxing more and more. Uh, his, his behavior becomes more erratic. He's wandering. He becomes a vagrant. He's broke, distraught starving by just shortly after this he breaks a window at the police station and is arrested placed in jail and ooh it's a crazy fine of $25 i i didn't do the math for probably what it would be for inflation i'm but $25 ooh. and uh is actually thrown in jail for a 10-day sentence. He serves, the majority of that, he serves seven days. But at the end of that, he was declared mentally ill, and then they were ordering him to the Oregon State Hospital for observation. That's why it comes into play. Um, He So that same evening, he met with Pete, or after he was released, he met with Pete Webster, and they discussed finances once again. He tried to borrow money, and essentially Webster's answer was, I'll loan you money after you pay me back all the other money. And that just exacerbated all the problems once again he left was arrested for disorderly conduct once again and was sent to the police station again (laughs) he was approached by smith who was a duty officer and he actually demanded that he got put in jail and he said Sorry, we can't put you in jail because you're not a criminal. And then he left, broke another window, arrested, disorderly conduct, jailed overnight. He constantly was filling his rocks 
or filling his pocket with rocks and when he was wandering around in case he needed to do this again. So he had a plan, basically. Uh, the next, was it the next day, I believe? Yeah, because this happened on a Wednesday. The next day, he was taken to municipal court, pleaded guilty, and then the judge there continued his case until Saturday, the 17th, he got returned to jail, <laughs> and it, the police were quoted as Richard Brodigan, 20 of 467th West, 17th Ave, went into City Hall Police Station and announced, I am a criminal, I am going to break the law. After that, he hurled the walk through the window at the station and asked police to lock him up. He was jailed on a disorderly conduct charge pled guilty to the charge, and the case continued to Saturday. Then they, they start discussing, okay, so what what was going through his mind? Why did he do this? What, what was the purpose in acting in this way? And basically it came down to it, and you can kind of understand, he broke the window purposefully in order to be arrested. His, in his mind, in jail he would be given food. You know, he was a hungry man who had no nothing else to turn to. And that, that sort of makes me think the situation here where I'm living, there's people who will commit petty crimes just so they can be arrested and thrown in jail because they don't have anything to turn to. They, you know, there's housing shelters for homeless or people who just have been removed from their home for whatever reason, even if it's, you know, it's not because they're causing problems, you know, they're not doing illegal things, they just have fallen on bad times, and there's no resources. So people who would never otherwise do, you know, criminal, criminal behavior, criminal actions, will cause these petty crimes simply because they can't survive out in the cold. So I feel like it's it's certainly not unreasonable that that was going through his mind, and that's why he did it. But there was another individual that was saying, and I think this is less likely. Um, the idea was he threw a tantrum, and because of his basically degraded mental state, threw a tantrum and got arrested because of the disagreement about money with uh, Peter. It connects with, you know, the situation and the, and the discussion, but I, I feel like that's not, that's not really the situation that occurred. I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's as likely. I think it really was. He wants to be arrested, so he has somewhere to stay, and because, by his logic, if he was in jail, he's going to, he's going to have at least some kind of meal. But regardless of what the exact reason, uh, you know, it's it's a deliberate act of some kind of desperation. You know, he's frustrated with his situation. He's angry. He has some kind of emotional distress going on, and he wanted to be placed in a controlled, safe setting where he would at least know 
what to expect, what's going on. Uh, an interesting quote from Edna Webster, actually, she was saying, he decided he was crazy. So he went down to the police station and they told him, no, you're not crazy. So then he decides to throw a rock through the police window. And you know, that's all she said. And you know, it, it kind of makes sense when you think about it. And uh, actually, not too long after that, he was seen once again in front of uh, the same judge for pretty similar behavior and he was charged about 10 days again he uh, they both both Edna Webster Judge Barber and Lois Barton the wife of Harold Barton who ran the housing area felt that he either needed to be taught a very strong lesson or perhaps needed to be put into some kind of psychological watch and they visit uh, Harold visited him in jail and he felt that yeah Richard definitely committed a crime there he was definitely a, a very problematic emotional state and he needed to have some sort of care and help in a sort of hospital type setting. Um, and with that, he was examined by two physicians in the courthouse and they both also agreed he needed to be at least observed and they could come up with some kind of con sorry, conclusion. So he was committed to the Oregon State Hospital and that's where they started. Uh, he actually does a recountment of his time there in the novel I Watched the World Glide Effortlessly By. Interestingly enough, the hospital that he went to was the same one that was used in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So that was actually an interesting little tidbit that I learned looking up this. Um, it's kind of frightening that he received electric shock therapy treatment and then they diagnosed him ultimately as a paranoid schizophrenic. But it's, it's pretty frightening to think that they uh, shock therapy there um, he was given about or I think they were saying it was 12 treatments um, they ended up prescribing him a routine of medication I didn't ultimately find out what medication uh, routine that he was put on it I know it's something that I was curious about but I didn't end up really finding what specifically it was not that it doesn't make a huge difference. I was just curious about that part. Um, he tried to have correspondence with Edna and Linda 
asking them, really, please don't think poorly of me. Please don't think that I'm this crazed weirdo. Please remember me as I was before this whole situation occurred. Don't think that I'm crazy. He wrote letters to himself, almost like journaling what was going on, um, describing, you know, his feelings at the time. And it, it was almost like he wanted to make sure that he was accurately remembering what he was going through and he wasn't losing, basically losing his mind and losing his ability to form memories, essentially. His mother, Mary Lou, actually was supposedly saying, like, this is another everyone has their own sides to the different events that was going on. She said that her and William would visit every week that they were in the, that he was in the hospital. Um, and like, I'm not totally sold on that, especially since there's multiple stories concerning that and knowing what their relationship was like throughout his life. I really, I don't buy it. Uh, especially when Barbara, his half-sister, was quoted as saying, I didn't know he was there until they had let him out. I had learned he had shock therapy, and after that he seemed really quiet. The only thing he told me about it was that he learned to dance in there, but he would never open up about it to me again. So, I, I just hearing things like that makes me very... Uh, skeptical that there was that much correspondence saying that she went in there every week to visit him while he was there, but his half-sister had no idea that he was in there until he got released. I I, I don't buy it. Um, so, I just... So, the... Uh, in February, he got to leave. Or, he was... Released. He got to leave, makes it sound. And he was put into custody with his stepfather. Uh, he sort of he realized that he his behavior was not the greatest. I think he came to the... He was self-aware and conscious enough to realize, okay, that was a stupid choice. Um, so he, as he quote... I became a model patient. I was there for three months because I was doing my best to get out of there as fast as I could. I realized I made a big fucking mistake. So, I mean, I think he was coherent enough to realize that whether he had other mental problems or not. And he... He, uh, after he had gotten out and was settled, he went back to live essentially with the, the Bartons. He actually was staying in a one-room cabin behind the Bartons' home. He was eating meals in with the family, so sort of a family-style family style dining, and then was actually doing odd jobs 
on the property with them. So he had some employment and still worked with his writing. He actually completed quite a bit during this period living with them. Um, I had a count. Um, six? No. Eight uh, manuscripts for novels and poetry short story collections. So he was he was doing well there. And I think they provided a good structure with him, you know, sharing meals with them, being put to work. I think the the structure there was helpful. So that same year, a few months later in June, this is when I think it made a huge difference. Or when it, it really catapulted him into developing as a writer because a lot of his release and a lot of his work came from when he was in San Francisco. And in June of 56, he left Eugene and was bound for San Francisco. He brought <laughs> a very small amount with him considering he was uprooting himself and starting a whole new life. Two boxes, one for clothes and one for works in progress. Anything else that he had written, that's when it was left with Edna. Um, he left, cut all ties with his family. His mother was quoted as basically saying, I guess he hated us, or maybe he had a disappointed love affair. Whatever. Richard practically abandoned his family, or the family, when he left here. I haven't the slightest idea why. I, uh, I don't know why. Maybe everything that's going on in his life up to then. Maybe all of the abandonment, the abuse, the terrible relationship that he's had with his mother, his father, his father, his father. <laughs> so, I, uh, I mean, sometimes we are terrible judges of ourselves, but I can, I can think of quite a few events that maybe he would want to cut ties with the family concerning. Uh, he, the only person that he said goodbye to, which he may not have even, if he hadn't come across her accidentally, uh, was his sister Barbara. She had said, you know what, I, I hadn't seen him since his release. They, uh, they had grown apart. I mean, they used to be quite close, but they had grown apart. Basically, <laughs> he said, well, I'm leaving. Didn't say where he was going. I just wanted to say goodbye. And uh, that's the last time that she actually saw him. Uh, and like I was saying, you know, there was a lot of reasons why he would just cut ties. You know, the fact that he was living in pretty much extreme poverty. And there was the abuse from his family. And, you know... The, the fact that him, his sister, and Ma were always living in where fell, where, <laughs> welfare homes, motor courts, always moving around, always being abandoned, always, you know, he was beaten by his, quote, and I'd say multiple stepfathers. So there was constant, you know, an, an unordered or <laughs> ordered, numbered, bulleted list of, many reasons why. 
there was actually there was another quote that really describes the situation very well from his daughter. Uh, my father told me that during the depression, he and his sister were boarded out to a family for a while. She was beaten every morning for wet, wetting the bed. One of his drunken stepfathers came to visit and wrestled with him, almost breaking my father's arm. Luckily, the people he was boarding with stepped in and stopped the stepfather. So, right there, again, painting a very vivid picture of another reason why he would want to cut ties and move away. There was... Richard claimed his mother loved young children but ignored and feared them as they were getting older. There was his mother's drinking. The, and he made mention, the only two concrete things that were always consistent, she drank a lot and smoked cigarettes. Anything else, you never knew what was happening from time to time. So, now he is in San Francisco, or establishing himself in August of that year. I mean, he moved before that, but now he's really established in Grant Avenue, apartment 38. He, it was, as they say, a rich network of streams to trout about in. That was uh, actually quoted by Nicole McClure, in a memoir, 99 Things About Richard Brodigan. There was a beautiful cultural environment there. And this is why he really starts to thrive. He gets in with all of these wonderful folk. There's people from Allen Ginsberg to Kenneth Patchen to... Robert Duncan to Jack Kerouac and countless more. You know, he is going to poetry nights and handing out his his leaflets and poet poetry right on you know street corners and it's being it's not it's not people taking it and just throwing it away. People are receptive to taking his his poetry. Um, an example of a night that he would go to. Uh, Blabbermouth Night, a uh, speaking event where folks would you know, read their poetry, make statements. There was a prize each night. Uh, well, a prize, each, well, yeah, each night. It was Mondays, so each event. Uh, you'd get a bottle of champagne, which, <laughs> and so Ken Davis, an artist, was recalling the event. Brodigan did this several times, as did Allen Ginsberg, Gary Snyder, Bob Kaufman, and many others. This is a recreation from many scribbled pencil thumbnail drawings I did at the time. This is before Richard was published, but possibly around the same time he was working on the title Galilee Hitchhiker. So it was definitely in the develop, again, a, a strong development developmental stage and I think it was really why he was able to get his work out when he did this really helped him develop himself and his style I think if he hadn't moved he wouldn't have been able to become the writer that he 
is or was um, that fall he became sort of a let's say a pupil a understudy a disciple of a man Jack Spicer um, he ran in a circle of writers and poetry also involving Ron Lewison. They were all these literary college-educated individuals who had poetry meetings and parties. <laughs> the one thing that uh, Richard didn't necessarily share with them is all the rest of the guys were very obviously maybe not obviously but they were gay <laughs> and he where it's not necessarily been confirmed that he didn't have shared I think reading some things I feel like he may have had an interest in whoever and again that's my opinion but these these guys were definitely gay it was just <laughs> and uh there was a uh, a comment made by i think it was robert stock saying brodigan almost never spoke and walked around with his hands in his pockets almost like he was hiding from everybody this was at a one of the parties that they had thrown at the place where he actually made his first public reading. Like he was almost a fly on the wall, but that being said, his work was very well received. And the uh, the impression of him as an outsider was shared by other people in this group. You know, uh, Nicholas von Hoffman, a, another artist, said, he stood to one side like a 19th century statue without a pedestal, and about an objet de neglected, put in the back of a barn like a rusty threshing machine. So they are, I mean, they're not terrible comments, but it's almost like they wish that he, they wish that he'd be more lively. They appreciate what he has to contribute, but he almost never does. He's a piece of art that is never shared. <laughs> Unfortunately. The Beats did not like his writing style. Despite being and running in their circles, he wasn't accepted as them. And he shared his time. He shared he shared a very similar mindset and an outlook on the world, but they didn't care for his writing style. They didn't care for the type of almost prose-like poetry where he was telling a story like a, a legitimately telling a story 
through his poetry, the one thing that they did like was his in-your-face, almost you know, shocking style of humor. And that kind of makes sense because the Beats, you know, liked throwing it in your face and being that way too. So I think that part made sense. But, and I don't think it really, mind, like he really minded because he always wanted to distance himself. He always, you know, would make the comment that he wasn't one of the Beats, or he wasn't part of their movement. So I don't think he really minds or minded that they they never really accepted or really liked his style. I don't think he was ever, and I, I didn't read any, where they really insulted him. Other than um, there was a comment, um, I think it was by Peter Manso, an editor, that came closest to being a uh, not even it was because it wasn't even really an insult, but it was the closest thing. As an editor, I was always waiting for Richard to grow up as a writer. It seems to me he was essentially a knife, and I don't think he cultivated that childishness. I think it came naturally. So even that, there's only a tiny tinge of it because it's like he had this almost childish innocence and it wasn't coming from something that he tried to do or you know, developed a writing style. It was, it just was who he was and wrote that rather than developing it as a style. It, it was just him on paper. So even that isn't really a critique or an, in, or I mean, it is kind of a critique, but not really a insult or a negative on the same topic, more a comment about his writing style. Uh, Conger Beasley Jr. made a comment. He was as close to being a genuine knife as contemporary American culture is likely to produce. He relied on his marvelous instincts to propel him through a story. That, plus his droll humor and offbeat characters, gave his novels a funky rhythm. And I don't think I could have summed it up any better than that. I think that is perfect. The only thing I would add myself is he's the man of a haiku. Not literally writing it, but distilling a piece to its essence. Like, you know, slicing off all of the unneeded and just distilling it down without it being unreadable. It's still a beautiful piece, everything that he has, but it's, it is what it is, and that's it. There's not all this, there almost is a sort of flourishment to it, but it's a, a much more simple, and it's just, boom, and that's it. And I, I think that's great. So he moved around a little bit more and actually was able to find himself a little more um, reasonable, I guess. I guess that would be the best way. Um, he moved from where he was on Grant Street to Jesse Street. And oh, I wish my rent was like this, $6 a week. Yeah, that's pretty, uh, 
pretty great. So you figure $24 a month total, but I'm pretty sure it was week by week pay. Um, so he's a struggling writer, but I think he could probably make that rent. He sold, to, you know, to make ends meet, he sold his blood. <laughs> he delivered letters for Western Union. He wrote, he was still writing poetry and mailing it into magazines, hoping to get published, making money per poem, things like that. Um, Let's see what else. You know, continuing into the winter, he was getting some more success. Or at least he was developing himself once again under Jack Spicer. He sent in a bit of his poetry to Spicer's teacher, mentor, however you want to put it, hoping that he could get an opportunity to read at the Poetry Center. Unfortunately... Well, not unfortunately, but giving a an opportunity to better develop himself, he actually urged Richard to attend Spicer's poetry. Poetry is magic, rather. I was saying um, it was a workshop, and basically he was quoted as saying, I suggest that before you think of reading, you go into a open forum of your contemporaries. So maybe he could develop his skills, his style, his, I, I believe that he thought that maybe he wasn't necessarily ready enough to be in that forum. He is putting out the big release of his career, Trout Fishing in America. He started writing the manuscript and in, I believe, a year and a half or two, he finishes and it's his huge break into the literary world. So this is the end of the development of his backstory, essentially. I mean, I can go into even more detail, but this is the gist of it. And then it'll be sort of a, a short mini episode tomorrow of just talking about the releases after this. I hope you enjoyed. I this one's a bit longer. I am very happy with that, uh, but I do want to keep it within certain ranges consistently. So thanks again for listening, and check it out tomorrow to hear about some of his releases and my recommendations of his work. Cheers. Bye.